Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 1. A Cold House There was a plan. There was a date too. That's not strictly true. There were two dates. In a series of meetings with GAA chiefs, Brian Peters, the manager of Katie Taylor, and her promoter, Eddie Hearn, hammered out the deal. The negotiations were tough, but there was a willingness on both sides to make it happen. Two dates were provisionally booked. One was the last Saturday of September 2022. One was the following Saturday. The Taylor camp wanted Croke Park. Wanted it badly. One of the main reasons was the fact that 2022 marked 50 years since Muhammad Ali beat Al Blue Lewis in Croker. That was going to be the hook for Taylor's homecoming. The greatest paying homage to the greatest and on the same hallowed ground. Unfortunately, Amanda Serrano wouldn't play ball. She was the opponent that Taylor Camp felt they needed to fill the stadium. The negotiations spilled on into 2023. Croke Park became complicated. Serrano said yes, then she said no, blaming an injury. Katie Taylor's homecoming will now be in the three arena against Chantel Cameron on May 20th. Following in the footsteps of Ali would have been special, though. It's hard not to wonder how Ireland in 1972 would have reacted to being told that half a century later, Ireland's most acclaimed sportsperson would be a female boxer. For most of the 20th century, Ireland was a cold house for women. Girls and women aged from 12 to 40 were incarcerated in mother and baby homes. After giving birth in these homes, babies were forcefully removed from their mothers and often sent to America for adoption. The Catholic Church and the state worked hand in hand. John Charles McQuaid, later the Archbishop of Dublin, played a key role in the drafting of the Irish Constitution. One line from that document is telling. A woman's place is in the home. 1972 was significant, not just for the visit of Ali. It was the year that the Irish Women's Liberation Movement was founded, and one of its founders was Rosita Sweetman. Well, I was just going back over Chains or Change, which was the document we produced in the Irish Women's Liberation Movement. Um, and it was the first time 
that women's position in Ireland had been looked at as on its own, you know, not as part of, you know, women being part of the general thing. And when I was doing my book, Feminism Backwards, mm. I went back to Chains or Change and went right through it. And I was absolutely staggered to see how bad things were. It's not that all Irish men were being bastards to women. It was that the architecture of the patriarchy was so firmly entrenched, hugely because of the Catholic Church as well. But in every way, women were disempowered and men were empowered. Whether men were good or not, or women were good or not, that was the setup through jobs, sexuality, education, the care of vulnerable women. In everything, women were so hugely disadvantaged. And the IWLM, the Irish Women's Liberation Movement, we only lasted for nine months. But out of that, all kinds of other organisations sprang up that began to look after women. You know, for instance, Nuala Fennell and her husband, they set up a, a house. They just got a house and did it up themselves and took in battered women. But there was no safety net for women who, for one reason or another, weren't looked after under the patriarchal system. You know, another thing that was kind of a, a running joke at the time of women on Valium, but thousands of married women were on Valium because their situation was so hideous. You know, like for middle-class women who got pregnant, there was no contraception, no divorce, no abortion. And for, for the working-class girls, they were, and the rural girls, they were shot off to mother and baby homes. And for a lot of middle-class girls, they were forced to marry the guy or the guy was forced to marry the girl. And their lives were often misery. You know, they ended up with somebody whom they didn't love. They'd met at a dance or, you know, there was no compatibility. And that was their life. And child after child, you know, like Nuala Fennell said, Irish wives were drowning in babies. And it was true, you know, they were. We sort of laid bare the patriarchy's architecture. And in every way, like, for instance, girls weren't supposed to be able to do maths. You know, it's like our lady brains couldn't add up. So all of the professions, like the sciences, engineering, um, medicine, veterinary, were closed to women before they even started because they didn't have maths at, at their leaving cert. Irish women in the 70s were basically cheap labour. The vast majority of women who were working, you didn't have a career, you had a job. And the job was in the lowest paid sector. Women earned 54% of what men earned. And they were in all the, the rough and tough jobs. And then, yeah, for women who fell out of the system, like there was no divorce. And because we wouldn't recognize, the Irish government wouldn't recognize divorce. The English government wouldn't recognize men who who ran away and left their wives and children. Legally, an Irish husband could walk out the door, leave his wife and children, go to England, get a divorce, sell the family home, get full custody of the children, all 
legally he could do all that and without the wife even knowing. You know, it's, it's terrifying to think how powerless women were. The writer, Ema Ryan, is from a different generation to Sweetman. She's the same age as Katie Taylor, and her own sporting background is in Camogie. My friend Alva Nigervik, she's, um, she's a poet and she's an academic, but she, she's fascinated by the figure of, like, Courtney Donica, who's one of the, the founders of Camogie, um, whose life story is, is very interesting in and of itself, but... She really wanted to set up Kenobi in 1904, you know, when obviously there wasn't a lot of outlets for women's sports because she thought it was like really essential to like the liberation of Irish womanhood. You know, she felt that if you were out on the pitch, like with your teammates, like enacting this sport, that it would kind of give you confidence and give you agency, you know, and kind of enable you to be more of a full citizen, I suppose, in Ireland. In the history of Irish women and sport, Maeve Kyle is hugely significant. Back in 1956, she made history in Melbourne by becoming Ireland's first female Olympian. Not that it was a cause for celebration with some. One man even wrote a letter to the Irish Times complaining about Kyle's selection. A sports field is no place for a woman, wrote a crank who only identified himself as Vox Populi. Selecting a woman on the team is most unbecoming, unseemly and degrading of woman folk. It must not be countenanced on any grounds. Despite your man, Kyle went on to compete for Ireland at two other Olympic Games. Rome 1960 and Tokyo 1964. Two years later, she became Ireland's first ever medalist at the European Indoor Championships, taking bronze in the 400 metres. More recently, Kyle opened up in an interview on what she had to put up with when training. I worked as a teacher and had a two-year-old daughter when I was selected for the Melbourne Olympics, she said. In the precious little time I had to get out training, I used to be passed by a bus carrying the workers from a local factory. They would wind down the window and shout out really obscene abuse at me, and I actually had objects thrown at me while I was out training. People would come up to the field I trained on and throw things at me. Ireland really was a dark place back then for any woman in any sport. Why then did it take so long for an Irish woman to go to the Olympics? Well, the main opponent to their inclusion was her old friend, John Charles McQuaid. Here's Rosita Sweetman again. I just remember McQuaid had such a um, powerful influence you know, I remember seeing him go up, going up O'Connell Street with his entourage one day, you know, and he was like a prince of the Medici, you know, the huge long purple train and a very, very clever man, but an extremely twisted man. Like he said, one of the things he said against sport was um, that women were getting sexual pleasure out of the pommel horse. You know, like for God's sake, it's like, the Taliban and the mullahs in Iran and Afghanistan today, you know, they're so obsessed with women's sexuality. They literally go bonkers in the head. Yeah, no, he was very, very against um, women taking part in sport. It was never easy for women in Irish sport. 
From Kyle's debut in 1956, it took 44 years for an Irish woman to win an Olympic medal on the track, with Sonia O'Sullivan taking silver in the 5,000 metres at Sydney 2000. But think of how O'Sullivan was treated for much of her career. Remember all the amateur psychoanalysis of her mental state that went on. Would a male athlete have been treated like that? Like Kyle, like O'Sullivan, Katie Taylor was another trailblazer. She had to hide her long hair under a headguard, and she fought under the name Kay Taylor as a teenager, passing for a boy. That was because girls weren't allowed to box competitively in Ireland at the time. Taylor's inspiration was Deirdre Gogarty, a woman from Drogheda who became a world champion. But Gogarty had to leave Ireland because she wasn't allowed to fight professionally here. Gogarty didn't come from a typical boxing background either. She was comfortably middle class, the daughter of two dentists. Well, all I can say is I was just born with a love for boxing. Um, I first realised it when um, I saw a clip of Jack Dempsey. And, um, you know, I knew then that something about that was really special. And I kind of, I kept it between me and my friends, mostly my friend Peter Horman. Um, but when Barry McGuigan came along and won the world title and boxing became such a mainstream topic in Ireland, um, it was kind of more acceptable to have an interest in it, but you know, no, definitely not wanting to go to a gym or, or get in the ring or anything like that. And I, it still took me another two years after McGuigan won the title who was, he was my inspiration. He's the one that made me want to be a world champion um, before I actually had the courage to walk into, to approach the boxing club. An amazing, uh, well, I would say it was fate was that my father moved his dental practice back into Drogheda after being out in Mornington. And he put his practice right across the parking lot from the Drogheda Amateur Boxing Club. So I would go to his dental surgery and I would sit in the waiting room and watch that club in the evenings and all the comings and goings and kind of fantasize about what it would be like to be part of that club. Back in 1991, Gogarty fought her one and only bout in Ireland at the bottom of a kickboxing bill in Limerick. The pro game appealed to her, but the Irish Boxing Union wouldn't sanction women fighting in Ireland. Gogarty now lives in Louisiana, where she works as a graphic artist during the day and coaches young fighters in the evenings. And she became the first woman to be appointed to the Boxing Commission in that state. Taylor wrote to her in her early teens looking for advice. That's the importance of role models. Gogarty has a defiant streak. Closed doors just made her all the more determined to chase her dream. Well, I mean, I just kept getting told over and over that women can't box, you know, can't box, you know, not, uh, you know, that almost like, we would be an insult to the sport, you know, that we wouldn't have the skills, we'd be too novice we wouldn't, you know, uh, we don't, they, they would always come back, you know, we don't have the facilities, you know, the dressing room, the bathrooms, the, you know, we were really just, it was just an idea of being a nuisance, really, you know, and it wasn't going to go anywhere anyway, so why bother us? There is another Deirdre who played a hugely important role in women's boxing in Ireland. Deirdre Nelson 
from Antrim. Remarkably, Nelson, a former kickboxer, fought for a world title in her very first pro fight. She was Ireland's second boxing pro after Deirdre Gogarty and was put in against Marianne Almaguer for the inaugural Women's IBF Championship. Nelson won the first round, but the fight was stopped in the second after Almaguer used her greater experience to pin her to the ropes. But Nelson's biggest contribution to women's boxing came outside of the ring. In June 2001, she took a sex discrimination case against the Boxing Union of Ireland and won it. Four months later, a 15-year-old Katie Taylor took on Alana Murphy in the first sanctioned female amateur bout staged in Ireland. But that time was a fraught experience for Deirdre Nelson and she decided to hang up her gloves. At that time, I had my British Boxing Border Control licence. I had recently got acquired the licence and I was training. John Breen was my manager and I was training in the gym and there was quite a few of the, some of the licence holders in there with, with a similar licence um, were sort of boxing down south and they didn't have to have a BUI licence. So I thought, well, you know, why can't I do that? So we were actually approached for a potential uh, contest down in Dublin. Um, but this says what you'd need to do is you would need to clear it with the BUI first. So basically, um, it was my partner, Stephen, because he was my, uh, was my kickboxing coach. He made uh, contact with them and more or less was told that it was a no-go and that they were waiting on uh, medical evidence from the European Boxing Union and basically until they basically had clarification, they wouldn't be interested in it. Um, However, I thought, well, I just, you know, we're going to contact the EBU and just see what the situation is. So we contacted the EBU and basically they were said, well, to be honest with you, they're, they're their own responsibility for their own jurisdiction. So I just thought, well, this just doesn't sound right. I think I'm being fobbed off. So basically I initially approached the equality uh, agency up here, but because obviously it's a different jurisdiction, they uh, advised me to go to the Equality Authority, which was just newly formed from the original one. And um, I spoke to them and they were very keen to take the case on. I was actually surprised, to be honest with you. I just thought it's, it's, it's a sporting case, you know, at the end of the day. But they just said it was just it showed a very, it was a very unique case. And at the end of the day, it, it sort of showcased what they could do very well and they uh, said that they would support me and basically we took the, the case forward to an industrial tribunal and uh, I can remember going into the industrial tribunal there was just myself and partner Stephen the solicitor and the barrister on our side and on the other side there must have been about 10 or 12 different ones from the BUI and their legal team including Mel Crystal who as you know is also legally qualified and I just thought, oh, God, you know, this is this is very intimidating. But I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to just tell them exactly what's happened and just let the case unfold. And at the end of the day, we did that. And then the judgment came out, I think it was about four to six weeks later, and basically ruled in my favour. Um, and I just thought, wow, you know. Um, and I, I, I thought that basically that would change everything. But um, it didn't, because at the end of the day, yes, it can establish a, uh, 
a thing down, set down a law, but you can't physically force people to put you on their bill. And then basically I was being told that I would have to apply for a license from the BUI. And I was self-funded at the time, Kieran. And to be honest with you, for the British Boxing Board of Control, it was a substantial amount of money. And I, I just, out of principle, thought to myself, well, why should I apply for a license from your organisation if I already have a license and there's a reciprocal agreement, uh, providing obviously you meet all the criteria, why can't I just use that license? Um, and so to be honest with you, I just thought, you know, with no guarantee, to apply for a license, go to the cost with no guarantee that something's going to come out of it. I just thought, I'm just not prepared to do that anymore. Donald McRae grew up in apartheid era South Africa and was 13 years old when Muhammad Ali beat George Foreman in Zaire. He remembers his African teachers being excited by Ali and found it hard to square that with their political beliefs. McRae became fascinated by boxing and he has written some of the greatest books on the sport. He now works for The Guardian and he credits a fight involving Deirdre Gogarty for opening his eyes to what women can do in boxing? Well, I think initially, um, women fighters were invisible to me. Um, I just didn't ever see women boxing. And I, I didn't hold anything where I would say, oh, you could, a woman could never fight. But there was just no opportunities, um, certainly in my vision, for, for women fighters to emerge. I think it was in the 1990s my own perception started to change because slowly opportunities emerged. And there was a fighter called Christy Martin who uh, was from the USA and Don King started to promote her. And I went to a number of shows in in Las Vegas sort of in in the early to mid-1990s where she was on the card. And I immediately became interested in the idea of, of a woman fighting because I, I just thought it wasn't so much the novelty of it. I just thought, well, I could tell she was a serious about it and she was an athlete. And, you know, I was keen to see how she would perform. And I think the first women's fight I could say I became quite caught up in was in 96. I think it was March 96. The main fight was Mike Tyson against Frank Bruno. So it was a bit of a big Big fight, heavyweight title fight. Tyson was not long out of jail. And on that bill, Christy Martin was fighting um, Deirdre Gogarty from Ireland, of course. And I became quite compelled by by these two women and and what was going to happen and how it was going to unfold. Certainly, it wasn't a great fight. Uh, Christy Martin, I think, knocked down Gogarty in the second. And um, she won comfortably. And... I don't think I'm being unfair to either of those women because they were pioneers and important figures in female boxing, but they did not box at the level of, of a Katie Taylor or Clarissa Shields. But I immediately took them seriously and I was interested in them as people and I saw them as fighters. But um, it took a long time before you know women got the, the platform they deserved. Like McRae, Thomas Hauser has a stellar reputation as a boxing writer. If a film is ever to be made of Hauser's extraordinary life, the opening scene may well be set in Madison Square Garden. Hauser celebrated his 25th birthday at the end of February 1971. 
At the time, he was working as a Wall Street lawyer. As a present to himself, he went to a big fight a week later, Muhammad Ali against Joe Frazier. Frazier got the verdict. It's a bout that is remembered as the fight of the century. Hauser was there, far, far away from ringside, in the last row, high up in the gods. Could any film director resist focusing on him as a foreshadowing of what was to come? Hauser would go on to write the official Ali biography, an oral history that is widely rated as an all-time great sports book. One of the reasons why Hauser gave up law and was attracted to the fight game was access. He could go into gyms and chat to the biggest names in boxing. Hauser went on to become the ultimate fly on the wall, spending time with dozens of fighters over the years in their dressing rooms before and after fights. One of those he spent time with is Katie Taylor. He has huge respect for her, but he has reservations about women's boxing, something he told me in an interview two years ago. I got back in touch with Hauser to see if he's changed his mind. I am skeptical of women's boxing for a number of reasons. First, let me say that women's boxing has advanced in the last few years since we spoke the last time. The fight between Katie Taylor and Amanda Serrano last April wasn't just the biggest woman's fight of all time. It might have been the best and was certainly the most heavily promoted. It was a wonderful, wonderful night for boxing. Not just women's boxing, boxing. Having said that, there are problems. Uh, let's start with the fact that most of the women's fighters still aren't very good. The talent pool is thin. It's gotten, gotten deeper, but it's still thin. Uh, many women boxers don't know how to slip a punch or where to hold their hands. There are an increasing number of good practitioners, but still not enough. You mentioned the John Shepard survey. And I was actually in touch with John Shepard yesterday. John founded and runs Box Racket. It's what boxing's one indispensable site. It's just a wonderful site. And I spoke to John Shepard yesterday. He said that as of yesterday, the four major sanctioning bodies had 1,380 different women's titles in 15 weight divisions that they offer to promoters for a sanctioning fee, of course. And that's all, there's world championships, North American championships, Fedeline championships, silver championships, interim championships. It's insane. Now, according to John, there are 1,909 active women boxers. That translates to 1.4 titles being available for each woman's fight. That's ridiculous. I mean, every fight could be a championship fight if the promoter is willing to pay for it. So you have women like Ebony Bridges who call themselves world champions. Ebony, I've seen Ebony Bridges fight. I've seen her in several good, what I would call low-level club fights scraps you know i'm not taking away from her the fact that she is a fighter who fights hard but to call somebody at that skill level a world champion is demeaning to boxing and to me it's demeaning to women like katie taylor and claressa shields and amanda serrano 
who are legitimate champions. Men's boxing has a similar problem, but it's not as acute. Hauser isn't alone in his skepticism. Indeed, there are plenty who rate Taylor highly, but simply don't rate women's boxing. A cross-sport, winning over the doubters and improving standards, takes time. Rachel Blackmore is another female star of Irish sport, a woman who competes against men on the racetrack and often beats them, a woman who won the Gold Cup at Cheltenham and the Aintree Grand National. Horse racing was no different to other sports in the way that women were sidelined for decades. They were grand for working in yards and as work riders, but the consensus was that they didn't have the mettle to take on men in the saddle. We only have to think back to the 1977 Grand National to remember what it used to be like. It's a race that will always be remembered because Red Rum won his historic third national. But it was important for another reason too. Charlotte Brew, just 21, became the first female jockey to compete in the race, taking the reins on Barony Fort. The horse had been a gift from her parents for her 18th birthday, and a surprise fourth-place finish as an amateur jockey in the 1976 Foxhunters chase earned her a spot at the National. It was a fairy tale story, but there were plenty who weren't buying into it. One of the loudest voices of protest was that of Ginger McCain, Red Rum's legendary trainer. He declared that the National is no place for a woman. Barony Fort pulled up four fences from home and Brew never enjoyed that kind of spotlight again. But she loved to tell the story of a letter she received from the woman of the BBC typing pool. They refused to type for commentator Julian Wilson until he retracted some unsavoury comments about the jockey. To many women, Charlotte Brew, Rachel Blackmore and Katie Taylor are feminist icons. This made me wonder. So I asked Taylor if she's a feminist. This was her response. I wouldn't really consider myself a feminist at all, she said. I just love my sport. I want to do the best I can. If that inspires other girls and women to take part, that would be fantastic. Ema Ryan definitely considers herself to be a feminist. And I put Taylor's words to her. And it's something I've kind of noted with other other female sports stars as well, particularly ones that like just really succeed, like, um, you know, Rachel Blackmore, I, I don't know if anyone has put, put that question to her, but she's kind of said things like, oh, I don't really think of myself as like a female jockey, I'm just a jockey, you know, there's like a slight resistance to engage with that kind of discourse, and maybe because it's just a really fraught field, you know, maybe people, maybe the likes of Katie doesn't want to get like too political, and it's kind of a shame that saying you're a feminist is considered political these days, but, you know, it can be. Maybe it's it's just a rabbit hole that she doesn't want to go down. Um, I think sometimes as a woman, you're so often asked to explain your existence through this this lens, and it can be exhausting. So maybe for the likes of Rachel Blackmore, she just doesn't want to, she wants to keep it focused on the sport. She doesn't want to kind of, uh, I suppose, get distracted by, you know, talking about what it's like to be a woman in this field. Because um, that's that's stuff that the male jockeys don't have to do. You know, that's a, an extra distraction. It's an extra burden. So I think that might be part of it. Um, but 
that kind of breaks my heart a little bit as well. I kind of wish Katie had said that she considered herself a feminist because she is definitely a feminist icon and an inspiration to a lot of women. Deirdre Nelson took a stand that enabled other Irish women to be allowed to step into the ring. But what of the generations of girls and women that never got that chance? To Nelson, equality is vital. Breaking down barriers towards equality is a necessary fight. I would say that I am a feminist, but I don't. Feminism has got a bit of a dirty, dirty word to it now, but it's not. I mean, feminism believes in equality for all, regardless of gender. You know, at the end of the day, that, that's what the backbone of feminism is. I suppose at the end of the day, I can't speak for Katie and, and, and why she feels that way. Maybe she didn't want to be labelled and forever, that was forever brought up. But for me, I, I'm, I'm proud to say that I am. But I've always been interested in equal opportunities, equality for everybody. I believe at the end of the day, people should be able to get their own, own talent, should be given an equal shot, no matter who you are. And it's, it's highly unfair that people put barriers, unnecessary barriers in front of people. And, uh, you know, how much talent have we lost because of that? You know, at the end of the day, I mean, there was all the barriers put when, when the likes of Nicola Adams and Katie were competing at amateur level. But thankfully, they were able to come through. But say that hadn't it happened, you know, you would have lost, especially with Katie, you would have lost that tremendous talent. And I would say Ireland's greatest ever sports person. Deirdre Nelson describes Taylor as Ireland's greatest. It's an argument that can never be won. Andy Lee, a former middleweight world champion, articulates why he feels she is definitely the most significant figure in any sport to come out of this country. Professional boxing is not a normal sport. It's, yes, we all know what the stories of professional boxing and what it's like. It's not a sport, it's a business. And for her to go in there and, to, you know, to change, to change these, you know, these, for want of a better word, dinosaurs, you know, and these old white men who, are, who run the game, who are set in their ways, who, who used to do things a certain way, to go in there and change everything and now have them on her side and champion, champion her, you know, her cause. But it all it all goes back to her ability. It all goes it, it, and the person she is as well. The person she is as well is a huge thing. But her ability, if she couldn't fight the way she can and the way she does, then I don't think it would have, she wouldn't have reached these heights in terms of a boxer, but also outside of outside of the ring with female boxing in general. You know, she's she's been the spearhead of it and she's been the catalyst for this change in what is now one of the most exciting sports in the world in terms of you know the female fights are just as better because there's a two minute round and ten, ten two minute rounds and they really go for it and they're usually generally more, much more competitive fights than the males Katie Taylor's steel comes out in all sorts of ways at the 2010 world championships the powers that be wanted women boxers to wear skirts in an attempt to sex up the sport Taylor made it clear that if they did, she'd walk away. Taylor didn't blink. The authorities did. The skirts move was binned. No wonder feminists love Katie Taylor. She's a thoroughbred of dazzling lines, combining silky hands with a razor-sharp feel for the flow of a fight. Her stellar career has been a victory for pragmatism and nerve as much as for sweet science. 
Katie's triumph has been one of an indomitable spirit, a transforming belief that if you fight honestly enough, if you refuse to accept the idea of defeat, anything can happen. Over the years, she's shown that she can shape the course of a fight with bite and intelligence, along with raw personal ambition. The greatest trick Katie has played on us is the illusion that victory is almost inevitable. After her semi-final victory at the 2012 Olympics, it was put to Taylor that it had been an easy win. The incredulity on in her face was writ large. Easy? Was it? Anyone who's ever stepped through the ropes knows that nothing comes easy in the ring. Eric Donovan knows Taylor as well as most in the fight game, and he gives an insight into what makes her tick. I'm very lucky, you know, I call Katie a, a good friend and we have become friendly from, you know, very young age. Um, what impressed me with, with Katie was she loved boxing and she always had time for boxers, no matter who they were. And she could talk about boxing all day long. And it's amazing how engrossed in the sport and how educated she was and how you know, just kind of familiar with it she was in every way. Like she lived and breathed boxing, you know, and everybody I think could could have learned from Katie Taylor, could have learned something from her. She was always first. Like if I, we used to, we had a lot of sparring sessions. Like we did so much sparring sessions and her dad, Pete, would always ring me up to kind of arrange that sparring. And then one week she could be with Carl Frampton or Davy Oliver because they might need, they might need Katie to work with, uh, you know, uh, compact, high attacking, uh, high guard, high defense, Uh, explosive physical fighters and then he might be looking for a slick southpaw counter puncher um, and that would be me so he would ring me and he would I remember he sent me the, he sent he shared the list online a couple of months ago maybe about a year ago and it was like all these boxers names and beside him it was their style counter puncher slicker forward attacker you know physical and Katie used to be doing the rounds with all these different boxers and um Pete used to be bringing her everywhere. So we always had these kind of great kind of moments together and great experiences together. But anytime I turned up, even if I was early, Katie was there before me. <laughs> you know, she was on the floor, ready, bandages, gear on. And just as you'd come in, it would always be the very same welcome, warm smile. There was never any kind of, you know, she was never too high, never too low, just medium in the middle all the time and just very grateful to see you and happy that you're there and just very nice and pleasant and and then we get into the ring and then we just become <laughs> we change the two of us change you know and uh, uh we just kind of tear lumps out of each other it's just been it was incredible the untouchable was presented by kieran cunningham and produced by kieran bradley <laughs>